I'm here on episode number 47 of the Path to Follow podcast with my good friend, Professor Jonathan Zimmerman from University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Professor Jonathan Zimmerman is one of the leading education historians today. His work and writing examine how education policies and practice have evolved and where politics and social movements intersect with teaching and learning. Dr. Zimmerman holds a PhD from nearby Johns Hopkins University, and he has authored books on sex and alcohol education, history and religion in school curricula, and the history of public schooling, and my personal favorite to read and learn about, Teaching Controversial Issues in the Classroom. His most recent book, published only a couple weeks ago, right, April April 1st, is titled Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. And I'm, I'm very excited, Professor Zimmerman, to talk to you about free speech today and, and everything you're doing right now in that regard. Um, so hopefully I, I covered everything there in that intro, Professor. You forgot the part where I cured cancer. <laughs> Otherwise, it was it was accurate. Awesome. Uh, yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you, Jake. Thank you for having me. And thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's a terrific idea. Yeah, and a great way to um, uh, kind of reach people that you care about, uh, about issues you care about. So yeah. more power to you. Thank you very much. And, and get into some of the, the details of what you do, how you got into education and your story. And then, and then maybe at the end of this podcast or in the middle, we can, we can talk about your book and, and what you've been doing right now. But the podcast is called Path to Follow Podcast. And, uh, and I think one of the first questions I ask people is how they got to do what they're doing right now and, and what led you to the path of education. And I know it's it's probably a long story and there are a lot of, you know, yeah. events that happened that led you here. But um, what were some of those initial kind of motivations for entering the field of education? Wow. Well, how long do we have? <laughs> I mean, um, it really starts with my childhood, like all stories do. And the fact that um, I, I had an extraordinarily rich, I think, and rather distinct childhood because my my uh, my parents were in the Peace Corps, like I was subsequently. And so what that means is as a little tyke, um, grades one through four, actually K through four, I lived first in Bangalore, India, and then in Tehran, Iran. Um, and in Bangalore, India, I went to the Bishop Cotton School for Girls, which took a very small number of boys in the lower grades. Hmm. Um, and, and in Tehran, Iran, I went to the community school, which was a fabulous international school at a time in the history of that country where Tehran was, you know, a hugely international and cosmopolitan city, you know, because of the oil boom and everyone that was moving there. Um, and those experiences, I, those are formative years, right? I mean, it's almost all of elementary school. And I'm sure you can remember things from second and third grade. I know that I can. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that really did begin... Um, uh, my journey as an educator, because it made me curious about the ways that people educate each other in every sense, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, and how that happens differently in different cultures, uh, in different nations, um, uh, how it changes over time. And um, uh, 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 after college, I joined the Peace Corps myself, and I was sent to Nepal, um, where I was a school teacher in the western part of the of the country and a village where there had, had, had never been a, a white person. Um, uh, you know, a lot of kids thought I was a ghost. What did you, what'd you teach in Nepal? I was an English teacher. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and and um, uh, uh, 
it was there that I discovered that in addition to being interested in education, I wanted to be an educator, which are different things, mm -hmm. uh, although connected. Um, and I, um, the reason I did is, you know, I discovered how many different ways there are to do it and how many of those ways are, again, so dependent on our cultures, our histories. So, you know, um, I taught some math as well. And the way that math was taught in Nepal at the time was through a song. Two times two is four. Two times four is eight. Two times eight is 16. So when you were out on the trail, you knew you were getting close to a school because you could hear the, um, the sound, mm -hmm. uh, the, the chant. And English was taught the same way. Yo biralo ho, this is a cat. Yo biralo ho, this is a cat. So um, I go in there and I do what was intuitive to me because of where I was from, which is I made a blackboard, you know, which was basically charcoal on a piece of uh, uh, a piece of wood. And with a rock, I drew a cat, a very crude cat. Um, and I said, that's a cat. That is a cat. And I hear them all going, biralo, biralo. And I say, what is that? Um, and they say, biralo. I say, no, no, that's a cat. Say, that is a cat. And they would. And and um, again, this wasn't rocket science to me, but it was magic to them because they had never been exposed to it. Um, uh, and so um, I came back from the Peace Corps to be with my girlfriend, who um, became my wife and is my wife. She was at the time a medical student uh, in Burlington, Vermont, which is where I moved. And um, I started teaching, ironically, um, at the uh, uh, at the high school he had attended some six years earlier, South Burlington High School. Um, uh, and this was back in the Halcyon days when if you had taught in the Peace Corps, there were certain states that would certify you to teach in their public schools. Um, and this helped explain one of the many ironies of my career, which is that although I teach education courses, I've never taken one. <laughs> I just teach them. That's what I do. That's how I roll. Uh, um, and, and, uh, um, then I just followed Susan for the rest of my life, which is not a bad game plan, if you can do it. Just fall in love with somebody amazing when you're a kid and you don't know any better, and then just follow them. And that's what I did. I followed her to Baltimore, to Charm City, where you are, um, still our favorite city, um, because uh, she got a residency at Hopkins. I taught for one year in East Baltimore, where I was um, a failure, in part because I think I hadn't been prepared to do it. Um, in Nepal and in South Burlington, I was a tremendous success, I think, for different reasons. Um, and in East Baltimore, I was a failure. I lasted a year. Um, and then I started uh, at um, the Johns Hopkins University, as we say. you got to have that pretentious article, you know, <laughs> the, the, the Johns Hopkins University. When, when you um, say you were a again, failure in, in East Baltimore, what do, you, what do you mean by that? What was so difficult well, I was for a you? failure be, be, because I tried to do the same things and teach in the same way as I had done in my, in, in, in my previous posts. Mm -hmm. um, again, just working on intuition. But what I didn't understand was how different the circumstance was there mm -hmm. and, and how I really had to alter the way I taught and the methods I used and even the way I thought about the whole process in accord with the differences there. Um, uh, and, and so um, uh, I lasted a year. Um, I applied to one graduate program. And don't try this at home. It's all luck. Everything is luck. I got in. I wasn't going anywhere. I mean, I wasn't going to leave, right? And that's, um, uh, I, I, uh, uh, I got a history degree. And, uh, you know, your first year or two, you're kind of reading, 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 reading forever, deciding what you want to write about. And I wanted to write about this thing called education. 
And and um, most of the the people in the department, which by the way at the time was dominated by some sort of craggy old white men, um, they looked askance at this, and they're like, "John, do you want to eat? Do you want to eat food?" If so, why would you willingly add the word education to your name? Like, don't you understand that in the United States, we subtract 50 or 500 status points as soon as you start talking about that? Mm-hmm. Fortunately, my, my mentor, Ron Walters, who was this tremendous man who retired last year. In fact, we're planning a, a retirement party for him, which, which is going to be in Baltimore and is going to be on Zoom. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Ron... Um, he, he had, I think, the best attitude you can have as a graduate instructor and one that I've tried to imitate, which is, are you into this? If you answer yes, he says, then do it. Like there's so much that's awful about academic life. The good part is you get to read and write what you like. So if you find something that you like, do it. Don't worry about anything else except that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, I ended up writing a dissertation that was um, about the history of alcohol education. That became my first book, Distilling Democracy. Um, if you read that book, you may become the first person who's not a blood relative uh, <laughs> uh, to read that book. But then I followed Susan again to Philadelphia, where uh, um, uh, she started a fellowship in infectious diseases, which is her specialty. And I applied to one job. Again, don't try this at home. It's all luck. Um, it was at Westchester University. Um, uh, which is outside of Philadelphia, formerly actually the state normal school, um, uh, where, among other things, my, um, my job was to prepare future social studies teachers and teach a class called Methods of Social Studies. Again, a class I had never taken, and this will become relevant, uh, but I just taught. And I did it for a couple of years at Westchester while I was driving around and watching people student teach, which was another part of my job, which was actually a great way to learn about Philadelphia and its schools and everything else. Um, and in the course of doing that, I decided I was teaching methods of social studies entirely wrong because I was teaching a classroom at Westchester where we would sort of fake teach each other. And that didn't really make sense to me. I'm like, why don't I just meet my students in one of these schools where I practiced, where I watched them practice teach and we'll do it there. We'll teach the class and we'll teach kids as part of the class. Um, and by this time, I knew a bunch of principals because I had been driving around visiting these schools and I bounced this idea off one of them. And she says, John, that's a great idea. Why don't you send me your, your, um, Philadelphia, your Pennsylvania teaching certificate and then we'll try to work this out. Well, you know where this is going or maybe you suspect. Maryland had reciprocity with Vermont, which was why I could teach in the Maryland public schools. Hmm. But Maryland did, um, neither had reciprocity with Pennsylvania. Okay, so this is pre-internet. And what I had to do was get on the phone and try to track down the assistant associate superintendent of certification affairs, you know, somewhere in the bowels of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And 45 minutes later, I've got her on the phone. And I explained to her what I'd like to do and why I'd like to receive the certificate. And she says, okay, you want to be certified to teach social studies. Have you taken methods of social studies? And I said, um, I have not. But I should tell you that I do teach methods of social studies. Uh, Will that suffice? And she says, no, you got to take it. 
And, and um, you know, by this time, it seems like the theater of, of absurd to me. And I'm laughing. And I just say, you know, should I register for my own class and, and give myself a grade? <laughs> and her response, I've never forgotten it. It's just the pièce de résistance. She says, no, that would violate policy. And I've always loved that because, like, that's the incest taboo of the bureaucrat, right? <laughs> like, the great people that we that we respect and admire in history, I don't know, like, you know, Jefferson, Buddha, Jesus, Gandhi, right? They all followed policy. Go visit their graves and you'll see that. Follow Mahatma Gandhi, followed policy. <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr., followed policy. Um, uh, and, and shortly after that, NYU called. And um, uh, uh, unbelievably, I got that job, too, to teach the history of education there. And I taught there for 20 years, commuting between Philadelphia and New York, hmm. as we raised two kids in the suburb of Philadelphia. Wow. Um, after they were launched, um, interestingly and perhaps counterintuitively, it just became too hard for us. Um, Susan was okay with it. This may be more than you wanted to know, but this is the story. She was okay with it when there was at least one daughter afoot. Um, but once they were gone, it's like, no, I'm not going to be alone in the house half the week while you're in New York. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, I was able to engineer the, the shift to the University of Pennsylvania, which is how I met you. Excellent. Um, so that's the story. That's the story. Um, how did you kind of narrow down what you were so interested in within the field of history of education into the, the topics of um, controversial issues in the classroom and sex and alcohol education and, and currently free speech? How did you kind of pinpoint, and maybe we could just choose free speech yeah, in the interest well, no, of time. No, there, but there's, there, there's definitely a theme that runs through. Okay. And it's a good question. It's the rare question that I can actually answer. Um, here's what it is. I did, I did what you're supposed to do in grad school, which is I just like did a huge dive on the literature of the history of American education. And what I found is it told you a lot about the people that created um, schools and universities. It told you something, um, although not enough, about the people that taught in them. And occasionally, although again, not enough about the people, uh, the kids that attended them. But it taught you almost nothing, as best I could tell, about what citizens wanted the schools to do and be. Um, and that's what I seized on. And that's been the running theme through almost everything I've worked on, um, is not how do these institutions operate, although I've written about that some, um, but where do they sit in the broader surround of their societies? And how do they interact with the people that patronize them, the people that fund them, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, and in a democracy, how does that work, right? Because those people are going to disagree with each other, often radically, right? about even what education is. Um, because it's, uh, it's so political. It's, everyone has their opinion on what's right and how to raise kids and what they uh, should be learning. Everything, Jake, all those things and a million other things. And I'm glad you said political because, you know, Aristotle said that, uh, you know, education is inherently political. And the reason is, is that any statement about education, at least implicitly, is a claim about the good life, about the life worth living. Like if you say education should do X, you're making some sort of implicit statement about what a worthwhile life is. Mm -hmm. And Aristotle said, oh, and by the way, everyone disagrees about that. Right. 
like what the good life is, what the life worth living is, and therefore we're going to disagree about education, and we do. How do these institutions even operate then if there's so many people with their uh, with their different opinions in, in one same place? Like what, what is the common the strand that, that, keeps, that keeps them going, keeps them operating? You know, look, Jake, I mean, um, if I could answer that, um, <laughs> well, let's put it this way. Thank God I can't answer that because if I could, the game would be up, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what I do, right? If I could answer it, I'd just answer it and then go to law school. Right. right? Um, that's the great American educational crazy, what you just described, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I study. That's what keeps me going. You know, how does it hold together? You know, does it even, right? For whom? Obviously, these institutions serve people in different ways. Um, some people benefit a great deal more from them than others. Um, they're highly unequal in the way that they're funded and structured, you know. Um, I, uh, how does it hold together? Who does it serve? How do these different disagreements, which are fundamental, as you pointed out, play out in the political and educational sphere? And here's the hardest question of all, and the one that I've never really answered. What if it turns out that most of the people don't want schools to do what I want them to do when I make a plea for democratic education. Jake, I'm a political creature myself, right? I'm not neutral in any of this. Mm -hmm. And for me, the most important function of schools is to promote democracy. And most of all, to engage and model what I consider the practices of democratic citizenship. Deliberation, discussion, tolerance, reason. I don't believe any of these are natural. I don't believe you come out of the womb doing them. And this is why I think we should have schools. Um, uh, not to prepare you for jobs, although I understand they do that. Not to make you rich or poor. Um, to prepare you for the only job that every single one of us are going to have, which is the job of citizen. Well, that's the way I see it. Yeah. Uh, no. All right. That's what I think democratic education is. Jake, what if it turns out that the demos doesn't think that? A demos like the people? What wouldn't that make my idea of democratic education fundamentally undemocratic insofar as the demos doesn't share it? Um, this, by the way, was a dilemma that John Dewey never really addressed. And in my very first book, I quoted an article by him about it that I've never seen quoted anywhere else. It could have been, but I haven't seen it. And it's an obscure article he wrote at the very beginning of the 20th century called, Are the Schools Doing What the People Want Them to Do? That's the title of the article. Hmm. And he says, I can almost quote it by heart. He says, no, they're not. And they can't because it's the job of the schools to teach the people what they want. Ooh, <laughs> come on. Like, how many contortions are you going to go through here? How yeah. democratic is that? So, you know, in this model, you know, it's almost like, Schools are sort of like what revolution would be like in a Marxist framework. They're like the good thing that you need for all the other good to happen, mm -hmm. right? But they're also part of the democracy, right? It's the job of schools to teach the people what they want, really? Well, who's gonna come up with what the schools are supposed to do? John Dewey? Right. Like, isn't that up to the people too? Yep. Like they vote, they pay for the schools. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, just an inherent dilemma in this whole story. 
And that's why I think the bedrock of this entire conversation is freedom of speech and, and what you're currently writing about, because without freedom of speech, there is no there is no anything. There's no schools. There's no conversations in the classroom. There's no society. There's no democracy without that bedrock foundation, which is starting to become under attack in a lot of ways in American society today. Yes, it is. And that is the connection, right? If you believe in democracy, you believe in the ability of citizens to govern themselves. And if you believe in democratic education, you believe in a system that will prepare them for that. But Jake, you're exactly right. And that is the connection, right? The connection is we can't do any of those things I just described without free speech. What is democratic deliberation or exchange without free speech? You can't do it, um, right? Um, and I do think it is under attack. I think we're in an illiberal moment. And I want to be really clear about this because we're also in a hyperpartisan moment, right? And what I want to be clear about is that the attack on free speech is fundamentally bipartisan. It's coming from every side, mm -hmm. not just from one side. That's what's so troubling about it, um, is everyone's attacking so when you turn on Fox News, you'll see this thing called cancel culture decried in very bright lights. And they'll trot out examples from universities, um, some of them deeply troubling, um, where people have been shut down or sometimes even fired because they said something that somebody doesn't like. And they are generally people, you know, the, the people doing the censoring are on the right, the victims are often, I, I'm sorry, the people doing the censoring in those episodes are on the left, and the victims are often somewhere in the middle or on the right, although mm -hmm. not always. Mm -hmm. The thing that Fox News doesn't tell you is that Republicans are engaging in all sorts of cancel culture um, all the time. Look at the different state legislatures where there are these bills saying we're going to ban critical race theory in the classroom, we're going to ban the 1619 project. Mm -hmm. What is that if not cancel culture? What is that if not a restriction, a fundamental restriction on free speech? And it's coming from Republicans, all right? So please understand, Mike, yes, there is a huge threat to free speech right now. But I think the most important caveat to add to that always, all right, is that it's coming from every side. Because we live in such a polarized uh, environment now, each side accuses the other of abrogating free speech. And what I want to say is each side is right in that, right? Um, they're both right because they're both wrong. And they're both doing to the other side precisely what they're complaining that the other side is doing to them. Would you say that that um, even though it's happening everywhere on all sides of the political spectrum, do you think it's unbalanced in certain ways in that most media conglomerates are liberal liberally run and a lot of the people who hold power at institutions like universities are liberally run twitter and silicon valley is mostly liberally run is it unbalanced or is it is it a conversation well, everywhere i mean how many people watch hannity and how many people watch you know um uh, tucker carlson i mean i think it's as many as watch chris cuomo and don lemon i haven't looked recently but i think it's pretty close pretty split right, right down the middle so, yeah, yeah. And so, look, I, I hear the point, and I think the point, frankly, applies better to universities than it does to the media. You know, um, I think, you know, the media, because of the cable and internet revolution, it's been so segmented. Basically, everyone gets a news feed that's tailored to their own biases. Mm -hmm. I mean, and just think about, think about that term news feed and how 
horrible and dangerous it is. Like time for your 2 p.m. feeding, right? right? Tailored precisely to all of your unquestioned assumptions, right? It's gonna be good for you, <laughs> right? Yep. Um, and, and everyone's got one, right? I mean, talking about bipartisan, right? So that, I mean, I, you know, that runs through the media. I think that the critique you're describing, it, it, it's, it, it, it's, it applies better to the universities, especially the elite universities, okay? Because look, there are people they will try to tell you that say at the elite privates like you went to and I went to that like there's ideological balance on the faculty. Those are like people that believe in Santa Claus because we can actually count this. Mm -hmm. And so like when Obama ran against Romney, I think like over 90% of full-time faculty voted for Obama. Um, among anthropologists, it was 97% to 3%. Right. Uh, you know, and like, who are those 3% of Republican anthropologists? Like my heart goes out to them. Um, uh, and, you know, sometimes people would trot out econ. Be, what about econ? Well, if you look at the numbers, it's like 75% of full-time economists voted for Obama. I'm like, dude, that's as good as you could do. Like that's, that's your Republican example. Three quarters for Democrats. Like, come on. So there's no serious, um, uh, uh, no serious and honest person denies the fact, and it is a fact, that at the elites, the faculty and the administrators are overwhelmingly on one side of the political spectrum. So, and so in universities that are supposed to be these places where it, ideas are exchanged and free speech is allowed, and you're supposed to question, and you're supposed to come in conflict with the truth. Why is it that they're bastions of free speech, but they're so politically and ideologically bent in one direction? Well, here's the problem. The problem actually isn't the fact that they're overwhelmingly Democrat. The problem is that too many of those Democrats are illiberal. That's the problem. All right. Look, I am a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. All right. I mean, Jake, you heard my story. My dad was in the Peace Corps. I was in the Peace Corps. I'm Jewish. <laughs> I have a PhD. I'm like a cartoon of a liberal Democrat. And if you went on to a, like the ADA side, Americans Democratic Action, and you know, you they have these measures of how much you correspond with the party, like it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm just a caricature of a liberal Democrat. You know, again, like pro-abortion rights, pro-gun control. You know, pro-Obamacare you know, anti-capital punishment, like right down the line, right? But here's the thing. I'm also an advocate for free speech, all right? And not enough of my Democratic colleagues are. The problem is not that they're Democrats, all right? The problem is that too many of them are hostile to other points of view. Um, and a good, a good example or illustration of this is the fact that because I'm an advocate for free speech, there are plenty of people on my own campus and elsewhere that think I'm a conservative. It Be just cracks me up. Because you defend you know? free freedom of speech. Exactly. Because that's been tagged as a conservative value. And the reason I wrote my last book with Signe Wilkinson, the cartoonist, is to directly take that on. The only way you can take that on is by looking to history. All right. Um, and the very quick takeaway from a little book is that if, when you do look to history, what you find is that every great advocate for this thing we now call social justice, um, you know, start with the abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony and the suffragists, right up to Martin Luther King Jr. and civil rights. Every great advocate for social justice was 
also an uncompromising advocate for free speech. Why? Because speech, free speech was what they needed to critique their oppression. And it's only in our own very blinkered and blinded times that we put these two things in conflict and we've imagined that either you want social justice or you want free speech, mm -hmm. right? That's just a product again of our own just twisted moment. And if we look backwards in time, we find that there's no inconsistency between them. To the contrary, right. free speech is actually the necessary condition. Frederick Douglass called it the great moral renovator of humankind. Because like you take away his free speech, he can't critique slavery. Right. And, and the first great censorship campaign in America was about this. Right. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was basically the slaveholding South saying you can't distribute anti-slavery literature. And by the way, in Congress, you can't like take anti-slavery petitions. That was called the gag rule. I talk about cancel culture. Right. I mean, they were trying to cancel the idea of abolitionism. Right. Um, and Douglas was saying, uh-uh, we got to be able to talk. Because if we can't talk, all right, we won't be able to make anything better. So when we, when we talk about freedom of speech in schools and elite universities, some people might be listening to this and say, what are you talking about? Like, if you're removed from college, if you don't have kids in college, or you haven't really followed this happening in universities and institutions, what exactly are we talking about in terms of freedom of speech being limited in classrooms and in universities? Where, where exactly is that happening? Well, you know, I'm really glad you asked this because I think there's a lot of distortion about this subject as well. I think some people turn on Fox News and hear the report about cancel culture and they sort of imagine sort of jackbooted thugs walking around schools and universities with like big scary clubs, right? That's not <laughs> it it's both more subtle and in a weird way, more scary than that. Yeah. Um, uh, it's cultural. I mean, that's why, you know, the term cancel culture, I have some problems with it, especially the cancel part, uh, mm -hmm. just because I think the term is very imprecise. The culture part, I think is really important, right? <clears throat> because I think this is a cultural problem in our moment. Um, it isn't that there are just these awful jackbooted censors walking around the university. What it is is that, <coughs> excuse me, the culture of these institutions has made them hostile to exchange and has spawned a culture of, yes, self-censorship. And we now have a lot of good data on this. Um, so you interview both students and faculty, um, Democrats and Republicans, and you ask them questions like, do you bite your tongue? Do you withhold your opinions for fear of like judgment, penalty, and all that? And huge numbers say yes. It all depends on how you're measuring. It can be complicated. But again, any honest person looking at this data will acknowledge that there is rampant self-censorship on our campuses, all right? And that's because people perceive a threat. Again, not a threat that they're gonna be like killed or jailed or any of that stuff, but a threat that they're gonna be maligned and yes, canceled, especially on the internet. And look, especially if you're a kid, you don't have to be a developmental psychologist to know that 19-year-olds really care a lot about what other 19-year-olds think, like sure. a lot. For sure. Right? Um, and who wants to be the pariah? You know? Like, who wants to be that person who is put on the outs, right? And described in a tweet storm or a million different Instagrams as a monster. Like, mm -hmm. would you if you were 19? Like, no. even if you were 
No, I mean, right? I, I see it in my classroom generally, even when we're not talking about anything that's a tripwire or political in any way. It's just talking in general, especially when there are girls and guys in the same classroom. There is yeah. a reluctance to speak because of feeling feeling judged in some cases. But at the university level and beyond that, it seems like, you know, adults would be over this phase and what what exactly what is what is missing in terms of the courage of people to say what's on their mind where is that fear coming from well again i think it's coming from legitimate places please understand jake i'm not saying the culture is legitimate right what i'm saying is i understand it from a self-interested perspective so let's take like something that happened in 2016 Bryn Mawr college um there was a trump rally out in westchester ironically and you may recall that a kid at Bryn Mawr just posts somewhere, it's probably Facebook, just saying, hey, is anyone going to the Trump rally? And could I have a ride? Hmm. Jake, she was so maligned and harassed and threatened by other Bryn Mawr students that she dropped out of school. Um, and just people calling her the worst names, like you racist MF or you piece of, you know, like go away and die. We don't want you here. And, and, and look, I get it. I mean, look, I, in no way am I apologizing for this. I think it's horrendous. But when I say I get it, like I understand why she responded in the way that she did, you know? And it's funny you mentioned courage because, you know, uh, it's not uncommon that because I write about this subject a lot, that a colleague uh, at my university or elsewhere will write to me and say, or more often call me and just say, you know, thanks a lot for your peace, God, you know, you... You, you, have, you must have sick guts to write that or some other body part. <laughs> and I always say, like, I don't have guts or some other body part. I've got tenure. Like, what's it for? Um, I don't feel courageous. I don't. You know, I just feel like I'm doing my job. You know, um, I, but it's a depressing moment. And those, those comments depress me. I mean, again, I understand that they're, that they're you know given as compliments i take them as such they're depressing to me about what they say about our larger surround mm -hmm. you know that people think that what i do requires this great courage you know um what that tells me is that people are afraid and this we know and you know again you don't have to be a developmental psychologist to know that in situations of fear people don't learn that well right because they're always, instead of really trying to engage, they're wondering, oh, shit, like, should I say that? Mm -hmm. That thing that that person said, was that okay? Like, yep. ooh, ooh. Self-censorship. Dangerous. This is weird. So, you know, the better part of wisdom is to keep your big mouth shut. Mm -hmm. That's where we live. I wish it were not so. I'm in no way, like, uh, I apologize for this praising. It's quite to the contrary. I'm just saying I get it. And even if it's not, even if you're in a group or in a classroom and it's not a specific statement where you're saying what you're, what you believe, right? Even if it's a question, I feel like people still fear the fact that, that you know, isn't part of freedom of speech asking questions and finding the truth and, and figuring it out, right? And, and the fear um, of asking a question is, it's everywhere, I think. It's just... I mean, yes, like, and how do you learn if you can't ask questions? I mean, again, you know, like, it, it's so interesting. I mean, all of our theories of learning suggest that you're right. 
I mean, think about this idea of inquiry, right? You went through the pen program. It's inquiry this and inquiry that, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's a reason for that. I mean, I'm not criticizing that. Like, that's what it should be. Right, right. That's what we say, right? <laughs> but how can you have inquiry on these terms, right? The culture that we've created is hostile to inquiry, right? So either change the culture or stop already with the inquiry rhetoric, right? Just own the fact that we've muzzled it, you know? Um, uh, uh, you know, it's like at some point you gotta like, you know, pay your money and, and make your choice. You know, if you're gonna talk about inquiry learning, own the inquiry and create institutions that really value it or shut up already about inquiry. So, um, this question of freedom of speech brings a lot of other terms with it. I think in 2021, uh, specifically some of the, the words that are used on college campuses, like safe spaces, um, trigger warnings, a lot of what you, you've written about, a lot of what some, some other university professors have written about, you know, sitting in the seat that you are in, right? Jonathan Haidt is someone that we studied and, and read about, and he wrote, uh, what was yeah. this book called? Uh, the coddling, coddling of the American mind. The coddling yeah. of the American mind, which has a lot of this factual data and a lot of these words um, included in in them. And um, I think the the major word is offense and the 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 idea that words can be a source of violence. And I'm sure that and and I haven't read your book yet, but I'm excited to read it. But I'm sure you've talked a lot about just the fact that words and speech can be categorized as violence today. And, and I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about that idea. Yes. First of all, going back to John, to, to John Haidt, I mean, I think the point of his book, really, remember, John's a psychologist, is that a lot of these enterprises you're describing, these projects, are billed as something that will protect and help people's psyches. And I do believe that the advocates for these projects believe honestly, that they will help and protect people's psyches. But I think John's point is, if you look at cognitive psychology and what it's taught us, they're wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they're, that they're acting in bad faith. I'm saying the science doesn't support what they say. You know, just, just take one example. I mean, this whole idea that if you're traumatized by something, we need to protect you from it. Actually, the cognitive psychologists say the opposite. You should be exposed to it, right? If we try to protect you from it, okay, you're never going to learn to deal with it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but to get to the thrust of your question about violence, look, I think the people that call speech on violence are onto something in the following way. Speech hurts. It does. I am not a sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt me guy. Um, I think we I, I think that speech that matters and especially speech that contradicts things and ideas that you deeply hold that you find sacred. I think that hurts, okay? But when we decide that we're going to try to prohibit speech that hurts, we will not be able to talk at all, precisely because speech hurts. So, you know, in the book that I just did with Signe Wilkinson about free speech, I, I, I repeat an anecdote that I've told in other many times, perhaps too many times in other places involving Mary Beth Tinker. Mary Beth Tinker was the 13-year-old girl that wore the black armband to Warden Harding Junior High School in Des Moines, Iowa in 1965. She was sent home 
And she sued, she and her brother and another guy, and eventually that worked its way up to the Supreme Court, where in the Tinker v. Des Moines case, um, the court said that that was, accept that was permissible speech, right? And that students and teachers don't shed their First Amendment rights at the, quote, the schoolhouse gate. Mm -hmm. Well, Mary Beth Tinker has become a friend of mine and really one of my heroines in this life. And um, I, I invited her to Penn a couple of years ago and she came to one of my classes and she did her spiel, which indeed, which involves, by the way, putting on her armband, that armband, and then putting it on students in the class. And I'm like, wait, shouldn't that be in the National Archives? You know, like, <laughs> what, what do you have, like an original copy of the Constitution in your pocketbook as well? You know, but she's great. She does her spiel. And then the, the Q&A starts and the students say, look, Ms. Tinker, you were fighting the good fight. You were fighting the war in Vietnam, right? That's what the black ban was about, you know, um, was, was uh, uh, protesting the uh, U.S. involvement in the Vietnam conflict. You were fighting the Vietnam War. This Milo Yiannopoulos clown, right? This Ann Coulter joker, this Ben Shapiro bozo, they just hurt people. Mary Beth Tinker wasn't having it, all right? And here's why. She says, listen, at Warren Hornington High School, there were kids who had dads and uncles and brothers. They were fighting and dying in Southeast Asia. You don't think they were hurt by this snot-nosed kid wearing this symbol saying that their loved ones were going to die for a lie? You don't think that hurt them? You're not thinking that, really. I mean, of course it hurt them. Mm -hmm. That was the point, right? Speak hurts. But if you decide that that is going to be your barometer for restricting it, forget Mary Beth Tinker. Because she was hurting people too, by her own acknowledgement. Um, now, after that, these are Penn students. You've been to Penn. They're very, they're very smart, and they've read their Foucault. You know, their next move is like, look, isn't this all an abstraction, this idea of free speech? I mean, isn't this really just a question of who has power and who doesn't? And the powerful people get to speak. And so they're all about free speech, especially white dudes, right? Um, uh, because they rule the roost. And um, uh, what they try to do is weaponize speech to hurt other people who don't have as much power. And then if you complain about it, they cry censorship. This is just about power. This isn't really about speech or ideas or anything else. Mm -hmm. But Mary Beth Tinker wasn't having that either. And she says, listen, in 1965 at Warren Harding Junior High School, I was a 13-year-old girl. Speech was the only power that I had. And that's why that was it. And that's why that's the, the example in your book, right? Because it turns yep. that it that flips that argument on it. its head a little bit. That was it. And once you take away free speech, even with the best of motives, again, I know there are lots of people right now at this moment that don't agree with me. I'm not questioning their motives, right? I think they want a, de a decent and just society. I think they want to fight racism, which is all around us and a horrible, the most horrible part of our history and our, our legacy. I don't question their motives. What I do question are their techniques um, uh, and their decisions. That's different from questioning their motives. Um, I think their techniques and their decisions are going to blow up in their faces. And I think that's what the history shows. 
right? You start to limit free speech. In the end, it will be denied to the people with the least power. Mm -hmm. And eventually denied to you. What makes you so sure? Like now you've got the tiger by the tail and you just want to pull, right? How are you so sure that it's not going to come around to mix metaphors and bite you in the ass? You think somebody's not going to muzzle you down the road? Get with it, man. Right? Um, like, like, jolt yourself out of your moment. Mm-hmm. Right? Look into the past. Look who this has been weaponized against. Right? And ask yourself, right? Do you want that happening again? Right? And how are you so sure that it's not going to be turned, that censorship against you? It will be. It will be. It has been. It will be. It's an awesome message, Professor Zimmerman. And uh, it is 1220, and I want to be respectful of your time. But thank you so much for coming on today. I can't wait to read your book. So many important things that that you're saying and writing and talking about. And uh, definitely want to continue this conversation. Me too. And Jake, thank you so much for doing this. It was a great conversation. And I really appreciate you giving attention and airtime to this. I'll be eager to hear what others have to say about it. Awesome. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it.